0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Louise Perry. Louise is a writer and campaigner against male sexual violence based in London in the UK. She's a columnist at The New Statesman and featured and a features writer for The Daily Mail. Her debut book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, is now available in the U.S., And I'm really happy to have Louise on the show with me. Welcome to the Deep Dive. How are you? Hello, I'm really well. How are you? I am pretty good. You know, a little early here in in the US, but you know, (laughs) I can't say that's unusual for me. I tend to be a... (laughs) Early riser. It's a it's a result of um, very very focused West Indian
1: parents. (laughs) My I'm an early riser too, but that's a direct consequence of having a toddler because they. um, Okay. Yeah. I didn't I didn't used to be.
0: (laughs) Different reasoning, but you know. We're we're here. We're here now, right? Your your afternoon and and my morning. So, you know, I want to just really jump into the book, the case against the sexual revolution. And you know, I think the the best place to start as usual is at the beginning, right? So give me an idea of what inspired your you know your drive or your thesis to to go ahead and and write the book.
1: I wish I could say that there was one moment, because everyone, because it would be so nice if I had someone like lovely anecdote about something specific that happened that that drove me to want to write this book. If there was one, I've forgotten it. I I've been working kind of around this issue in a lot of different ways. I did women's studies at university um, and anthropology, and I worked at a rape crisis centre as a younger woman, and then I've as a journalist, I've been writing about and men and women and sex and relationships and families and all this stuff for, for a while now. And I also, as a, a, a I'm press officer for a campaign group that I, I write about in the book, which is all to do with, um, with sexual violence. So for some reason, <laughs> I keep being drawn to talk about this from all sorts of different directions. And also just having so many conversations with, I mean, just anecdotally, I just have so many friends, acquaintances, um, younger women that I know in the UK and elsewhere, who are miserable and having a terrible time in our current sexual culture. And it just seems so at odds to me with the popular narrative of of the sexual revolution, or the popular progressive narrative of the sexual revolution, which is that it's been unambiguously good, particularly for women. And uh, the book really is just an attempt to offer a different narrative. Not that it's completely bad, but that there is a case against it that progressives need to hear just as much as conservatives.
0: you know, kind of diving in a little deeper, no pun intended, to the, n- <laughs> to the name of the <laughs> show. I mean, the the book makes a, you know, it's in the title, right? Mm-hmm. The t- the case against the sexual yeah. revolution. So I, I think to a, a lot of folks, you know, probably myself in- included, it would be, well, maybe I'll, I'll t- take myself out of it for a little bit, but I'm like, well, let's define like, the sexual revolution, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm kind of a, a stickler for things like that, right? And you know, if I'm making a case against, I kind of want to know, like, are we talking about the same thing, right? Because I think yeah. that's an um, that's an umbrella term that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. So how are how are you defining and thinking about the sexual revolution?
1: So I've 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 got a slightly tighter definition than is often used because I don't really write in this book at all about women entering. The workforce, which really means, you know, middle class and upper middle class women entering the workforce. That's what that's what really happened in the sixties onwards that was so defining of that time. I might write a sequel on that. I'm thinking about it at the moment because I've now it's a funny thing when you write these books, you you know, I actually finished writing this over a year ago and I'm my my head is already sort of in the neck in the next stage while also talking about the talking about the previous one. Yeah,
0: there's new there's new things, right? There's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's
1: really useful actually doing that because it means that you're um I have spent my whole summer talking about this book. It's been it's been amazing, honestly, because it was published in at the beginning of June in the UK and then in September in the US, and everyone wants to talk about it. Which I'm told is not uh, this is my first book, so I've got nothing to compare it to. But I'm told that's not a standard experience for the first book that you have this level of interest. But clearly, people are just desperate desperate to talk about this, and it's really interesting, kind of drawing out. Seeing seeing the patterns in terms of what people find really interesting, but anyway, defining the sexual revolution, the the way that I'm defining it is it is basically the loosening of norms around sex post 1960s. So I, I describe it in the book as sexual disenchantment. This is an idea that comes out of the 60s and really comes out of the rejection of of Christian sexual ethics, which is which is really the, that's the central theme to what to what I think the sexual revolution meant on an ideological level. It was this. This mass rejection of the system of sexual ethics that had come before, which said, for instance, that you, you shouldn't be having premarital sex, you shouldn't be consuming porn, you shouldn't be buying sex, all of this stuff that kind of comes within the, the Christian framework. You see this mass rejection of that. Gradual, you know, you clearly have you have the out outriders in the 1960s and 70s who are who are leading the way, and then slowly but surely you have everyone almost everyone else coming to agree with them. That's the ideological thread of the sexual revolution. The material thread of it has got to do with technology and the ways in which our lives have changed a lot and the way that that feeds into sexual culture and relationships and families and so on. So the pill is the obvious one. The pill is the the big technology shock of the, the 1950s and 60s, remembering that it gets rolled out slightly gradually. So originally the pill is only made available to married women and then it's available to unmarried women. And then subsequently you have the decriminalization of abortion. That sequence happens pretty much everywhere. In the developed world, at about the same time.
0: Well, in, in, in our developed world, we're moving backwards. So. Well, yeah, it was because you know, yeah, I the, don't know about that abortion piece <laughs> just, just yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As the
0: I, United States steams back toward the 1850s.
1: <laughs> it's an interesting thing about this, the states, because which is not at all true in the UK, like the idea of abortion being recriminalized in the UK is for the birds, it's not going to happen, which I think probably has to do with the fact that Christianity has clung on in America in a way that it hasn't in other parts of the world. I remember, I think it was, do you know the historian Simon Sharma? Who is, uh, yeah, I think he lives in America now. I remember once hearing him say, and I've tried to find this quote later to actually cite it and I haven't been able to, but I remember it vividly, so I'm sure he said it. He was once asked by, when he was living in America and he was writing History of America at the time, and he was asked by someone, why is America so religious? It's very strange, why is it so religious? And he said, the question is not why is America so religious, the question is why is the rest of the Western world so non-religious? It's America that's remained truer to the human norm. Why, doesn't, why is everyone in the UK suddenly stopped going to church? That's the big question. I, don't think, I, think, um, I don't think we have an answer to that, really. Yeah,
0: we, not to derail this conversation, but I think... <laughs> I think that that historian is clearly missing the the true religion of America. It's <laughs> <Which is laughs> politics,
1: he, yeah.
0: <laughs> if, if, they, if he thinks it's it's inside of a church, mm. I think mm. you got to start reading some different books because <laughs> mm, mm, mm. <laughs> America definitely doesn't worship a, a Christian God in that, in that respect. And and, I, and I'm not religious at all. So mm, that's not i yeah. I'm not even making a, a, a case for that. I'm making the case that even if one were to assume that's true, that's not what America um, worships. <laughs> um, but,
1: but it's so Christian inflected. I mean, like I'm I'm by no means original in saying this in John McWhorter and so on has got his recent book about it, but it's this really strange moment where on the one hand, you've got this, you've got rejection of Christianity, you've got some Christians clinging on and this is part of why Roe is overturned. But then you've also got, a deeply, deeply Christian culture that doesn't actually describe itself as such. Do you know what I mean? Like politics is, uh, anyway, there's, there's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but <laughs> but, um, but, that, but it also is, I mean, it is linked to the sexual revolution in the sense that we've had, it's a really radical thing that happens in the 1960s. You've got, you're suddenly able, you suddenly for the first time in the history of the world, in the world, in the history of the world, women can suspend their fertility by taking this one pill such an important pill that we call it the pill everyone knows what you mean when you say the pill that's how important it is and then at the same time you've got this further political moment of questioning everything that has come before and i and i i, you, I have to you can't help with it there must be something to do with the second world war right that you have such a such horrific mass bloodshed and then the, the, the young people who come out of that have basically lost faith in the culture that produced that event. So everything is on the table for re-questioning and, and sexual ethics are top, are top of the list. And there have obviously been periods where people have sort of cycled in and out of more or less permissive attitudes towards sex. The... The Georgians were a lot more sexually permissive than the Victoria, their Victorian grandchildren, for instance. So you do see variation, obviously, over time. But I think what makes our period of, of sexual permissiveness distinctive is that we've got that technological backing. You know, you've got the pill, which actually makes it possible for people to um, to be, to experiment sexually in a way that they couldn't previously without producing a lot of illegitimate children. And, uh, and that's why it sticks. And now it's to the point now where, you know, It's almost impossible to imagine someone in a a secular context making the case, for instance, for not having premarital sex at all. That is so outside the Overton window. And yet that was was completely commonsensical for pretty much all of human history up until now. (laughs) Every culture has some sort of marriage system. Every culture has some sort of restrictions on sexual behaviour. I think that the, the really committed sexual revolutionaries of our era they had this belief that actually we didn't need, we, we, could, we, could, we could do away with stigma, we could do away with shame, we could tear down all of these barriers and restrictions. And I, I don't think, I think that's, that assumption has been proven to be false. I think that actually we do need barriers and frameworks in place. Um, the question is what they should look like.
0: Yeah, I, I think these are going to be incredibly bad analogies in the sense that, you know, they're, they're imperfect. You know, mm-hmm. let's not say they're bad but in the sense that barriers are good to a mm. certain extent as, as someone who is a creative and works in a lot of strategy, you know, the worst, the worst brief is the brief that says, do whatever you want. Mm. Right. That, because yeah. yeah. Because now <laughs> you're kind of floating, right. There's, there's no restriction. So guardrails or barriers or some sort of distinctions make sense, right. Yep. Because the the limitations imposed by a tight brief or like an ideology or something can actually expand the creativity because now you have to work within the confines of something so now you have to start to really think right mm-hmm. instead of just being like anything goes right <laughs> which is just sort of a lazy a lazy way to look at things mm-hmm. but what i what i kind of come back to when i'm when i'm going through the book is that these limitations are unevenly distributed throughout time. You know, some some people have a lot of limitations, some people have a lot of freedom. Some people have the some people's freedom is the ability to limit the the abilities of others, right? So when we talk about this idea of Christian sexual ethics and the norms, you know, I'm I'm puzzled by that because I'm like when was that ever the the thing, right? In the sense that there was the stated thing right like i could pick up a book and read it and say oh these are the rules right and then there're the realities mm-hmm. of those of those rules right so on a simple note like i remember um, you know again this is all anecdotal right like you know i could go back and you know look at those I, there's a show called um, the nick That was on Cinemax back in like a few years ago. It was a really good show, but it was like set in like the 1890s or 1880s in New York about a hospital called the Knickerbocker. Mm -hmm. It's the name The Nick. And there were scenes where people would have like, you know, pornography. It was like these little, like, still like viewfinder picture things. And, you know, it, it definitely wouldn't be what we would consider pornography, Mm-mm. but for their time, it yeah. was like, oh my God, her ankles are exposed, right? Yes. And it's like, gee So, And so <laughs> have we, haven't we always lived with something like these things? Yeah. And even within the times when people would have thought we're more, you know, Conservative or more ethical in our in our sexual norms, there were always outlets ar- around that. So I'm trying to get a sense of how revolutionary is the revolution.
1: So you're right that there are always people who break the rules in all in all kinds of different ways, and often there there's often a kind of a, a seam of hypocrisy within a culture that is sort of more or less acknowledged. I mean the the 19th century is really interesting in this regard because on the one hand you've got a very deeply religious society i'm thinking about the uk but this does of course apply to the us as well to some degree deeply religious society high degree of church going although that 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 fades a lot over the course of the century and you know deeply sentimental attitude towards children for instance and towards I did, a, I did work at university as a, a postgrad work on children's literature from that era, and wow, the degree of piousness in children's literature is just astonishing. It's almost unreadable now. You also had, like, huge numbers of child prostitutes in a city like London, and you had a surprisingly low age of consent. So these things can kind of run alongside each other. And, of course, every society has adultery, every society has kinds of pornography um even in the era before before photography every society has prostitution the question is what the official line is on all of these things because the official line does affect how people behave a society i mean one example of this in our own in our own modern world is that there is prostitution in every country in the world but the size of the sex industry does vary quite a lot depending on the law so you can't It's true that you can't eradicate the sex industry by banning it, that's clearly true. But you can also look at, a particularly revealing statistic is um, the proportion of men in any given country who who have bought sex at some point. And that correlates extremely closely with the legal system that's in place. So countries where, and you can see this across time as well, so for instance in Germany when they legalised the sex industry, which I, I would say has proved to be a disaster for all sorts of reasons, a lot more German men start buying sex because there were always a sort of core minority who would insist on doing it, even if it was illegal. But there's also a lot of men who who wouldn't, who for whom the law was a deterrent, and also because the law ends up being sort of closely connected with 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 social norms as well. So if it's considered to be, say, the UK is one of the countries in the world with the lowest proportion of men have bought sex, and even though we don't strictly criminalise. Prostitution, We do criminalise lots of things associated with it, like street walking and brothels and stuff. It's not conceivable that a stag do would go to a brothel. For instance, that's just not a socially... Maybe a strip club, but not, it's not socially acceptable for a whole bunch of men to go to a brothel. In Germany, that has become socially acceptable as a, as a result of the changing in the law. So it's not that you can, like, top-down impose say strict christian sexual virtues on the whole of a society that's not going to work like of course there will be people who defy that for all sorts of reasons but that's also not to say that you just say oh well (laughs) whatever people are people because people do they do respond to incentives they do respond to laws and cultural ideas and you know we are our behavior is flexible
0: oh yeah absolutely Mm. there there's there's definitely flexibility in that Mm. and one of our most flexible things is toward honesty, right? <laughs> and yes. so, so oftentimes when, you know, and, and I'm, I'm the person who read the book, right? I've not done the research or read all these studies, but my, my skeptical mind is like, you know, some of these folks be out here lying, right? <laughs> like they're just not, <laughs> yes. you know, just, that's, that's not the most like social scientific, you know, phrase in the world, but you know, just to kind of keep it real, like, you know, some of these folks are just out here in these streets not being honest, right? So the, the idea of of you know I think paying for sex, I would have to understand like there's a whole range of activities that could happen inside of a strip club that would beg me to be like, mm, well what'd you kind of pay for, right? Like how are we defining that? Like kind of like the, you know, Bill Clinton kind of Clinton, yeah. the Clintonian measurement of, of sex that has stayed with us for decades. Right. And so those are those are the things that I find so so fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Is that we're asking people to be honest about many things that they that they are very rarely honest about, right? Mm. Like they, all of us have something running in the back of our head in the sense like, you know, there's that old adage, would you let somebody look at your browser history, <laughs> right? Like very few people are going to put their browser history out in the public space, right? <laughs> I mean, just accidents alone could, could send us all into like a penal college right? Like, you know, you thought you were typing one thing you're like, oh my God.
1: Speak for yourself. That,
0: well, yes, I, I definitely have. I mean, so, I mean sometimes I've, I've like literally seriously Googled some of the, what I'm thinking is completely innocent stuff. Like, oh, cupcakes in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden it's like, right. you know, like, yes. I did not know cupcake was spelled that way and would lead me to this very dark place, right? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm I'm trying to 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 like wind into you know how do we stretch the thesis when the ground that we're building the thesis on to me likely has a little bit more variance than maybe other things, right? Mm. So that that's kind of how do we balance that reality? Yeah. If, if you even think it's a reality, maybe you think like, look, the stats are what the stats are, right? Where I'm a. I'm skeptical of this of the stats, is what I'm saying.
1: I mean, yeah, you're completely right that stats on on anything private, intimate, shame-related are going to be open for dishonesty. <laughs> Although I always think as well that there's this phrase from um, I think Eben Burke. I, I think I think the line is where shame keeps its watch, virtue is not entirely distinguished, extinguished from the heart meaning that if people are ashamed of something, it's normally because they kind of know it's wrong. If they're not at all ashamed, that means that they don't think it's wrong. You know, you'd be completely honest. It's a discussion, it's a completely different, a different but related area of polling is looking at people's attitudes towards racism over time. And the argument often that you'll get from any kind of statistics on racism is that, well, people are gonna lie, people aren't gonna say, oh yeah, I'm extraordinarily racist, yada, yada, yada. But that also suggests that people do think it's wrong. So that's something. If you've got over time, you've got the proportion of people who openly admit to being racist going down. Some of those guys might be lying, but they do at least seem to recognise that it's no longer socially acceptable. So that's just like something, there's like move in a positive direction. And I'd say the same, I suppose, in terms of surveys on on sex. If you've got men insisting on, oh, I've never bought sex, like they are at least, and they're lying, they are at least... um, trying to obey a norm which says that you're not supposed to do that. Whereas, say, the example I, I I've I've keep returning to in my mind is, is thinking about the Roman world in which Christian sexual ethics emerged where prostitution was completely fine. It was completely fine. And this is in a slave society, of course, where you have this almost unlimited supply of prostituted women in, in slavery and buying sex is extremely cheap. It's probably like the equivalent of buying a loaf of bread. I don't think that you'd have many Roman men, if any, lying about having bought sex, because they wouldn't think that it was something you needed to lie about. And that's why I recently finished reading a biography of St Paul. That's why the Christian system, which says, actually, you can't do that. Like, high-status men do not have unquestioned sexual access to their inferiors, was very radical. And it was one of the reasons why women flocked to Christian, Christianity in the early days of the church, because that really wasn't the dominant view at the time, which is to say that yes, people lie and they disobey rules and they are hypocrites, but there there is still genuine variation on the basis of what's considered acceptable at any given time and place.
0: And and who's acceptable for right, like mm-hmm. that superior inferior piece, right? And there's a there's a part that. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but one of the things I remember there was a a line and I'm not going to I don't know the page exactly, but it was talking about like this idea of men as gentlemen, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that might might ring a bell. Like this this idea of, of how we move in a, in a space when we have these these norms and there was this notion of gentleman behavior or what I would call like chivalry, right? This mm-hmm. idea that men acted in a certain way and women res- responded to that and and through this this arc of of revolution we've kind of lost that right mm. like I don't, and I'm, I'm not. I don't even know if you mentioned chivalry. So chivalry is my word, but I do remember. I
1: know I, I do mention. I, I'm pro chivalry. Okay.
0: okay, but I, I do mentioned being, a, being a gentleman. Yeah. Maybe I'm kind of anti chivalry, so I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> like I'm, good. I, I am kind of anti chivalry. I do, I have said that not on the show, but in life. Mm. Like I'm kind of like. What are we talking about here how come but
1: tell me tell me why you're what's your or
0: reposition? because I, I just think all of that shit is just you know again these are not very eloquent terms it's, <laughs> it's 7 12 in the morning but i like to be very honest and stuff um jokingly i just think like this is all kind of bullshit right like this was stuff when women couldn't work
1: mm.
0: right like women, women were like held down and so men had these sort of like notions about like wooing them right because women had no, you know, in their minds, right? Sex is something that you have to convince them to to do mm-hmm. or like or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So I got to, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's like all these three date rules and all this kind of stuff. I just think it's bullshit, <laughs> you know? Like we're we're trying to like put a layer on things in order to get to the real thing. And, and so that was my question, right? Like when mm-hmm. I, my thesis is again, imperfect thesis, but men have never been gentlemen right? Like, I just think that's, and, and I'm, this is American perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I look at the history of this country and it's dominated by the the notions and ideals of white men, mm-hmm. right? And so while white men were talking about putting white women up on a pedestal, you know, like literally on a pedestal, right? They were raping black and brown women mm-hmm. and indigenous and murdering them and doing whatever they wanted, right? So they might've been a gentleman to mistress of the of the plantation but yet there were a whole bunch of light-skinned kids running around raped through their overseers their their masters their sons all of it yeah. right so who, who was a gentleman thomas jefferson with his 200 slaves and many, hundreds of raped women like i don't i don't see that right so i'm trying to reconcile that reality i feel like mm. in that context i look at it and i say like they this is the ultimate hypocrisy they're going to put up these ideals particularly southern genteelness and all this kind of stuff hmm. and have people that they view as property and do with them what they want and so that becomes that's the true sexual norm right that their outlets are the are the people that they own that they don't view as people but they can do whatever they want so the anything that like ties back to that I just can't get with it. Right. So that's the, my why. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how does that factor into this conversation? Because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of light-skinned people running around that would, that would be like, mm-hmm, I don't know about that. <laughs> right? My great-grandfather owned my great-great-grandfather owned my family. Right.
1: Mm. Which is why I think that, the, I mean, I have a line in the first chapter where I say that, like, I'm partly writing, I'm writing against two different narratives. One is the progressive narrative, which says that everything has, like, got indisputably better over the last, say, half century. And that used to be, I mean, I'm partly writing that because I used that used to be what I thought. You know, I'm partly writing, I, I partly write, wrote a book that I would have wanted to read when I was 18, say. But I'm also writing about the conservative narrative that says the opposite, that everything's got indisputably worse. Like, neither of those things are true. What we're talking about is trade-offs and complexity and 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 all of this so and i and i completely take your point that clearly the old sexual norms did not produce consistently good behavior by any means and also that that behavior that all of this has always been driven by uh race and class and and institutions like slavery and yeah and and one needs to apply that to all societies as well including including slave societies there's this really interesting book by um, Tom Holland um, British historian called Dominion where he talks about the um, the effect of Christianity on well he talks about the ways in which Christianity continues to sort of inflect all of our modern, modern ways of thinking in ways that we don't necessarily realise and he argues that even though even though Christianity has never been sort of successful in actually encouraging the likes of Thomas Jefferson to be consistent in who they apply gentlemanly behaviour towards. It is unusual in the sense that it does still expect sexual restraint from high-status men because a lot of, say, the Roman tradition did not do that, it didn't even expect it, it didn't even try, right, let alone producing anything like consistent behaviour. So. But yeah, but the point is that it doesn't it doesn't always work. I mean, I think, though, that the mistake the, the mistake is to say, well, they're all a bunch of hypocrites, so why don't, like what's the point? Throw it all out. All these words are empty. There's, the, like, reject the past. And that is, of course, the thinking of the 1960s. You say, look at all the evils of the past done to all sorts of people. Overhaul it. We need a revolution. The problem I think with, and here's my case for chivalry, is that there is an essential asymmetry between men and women which is never going to go away. And part of that asymmetry is just physical, the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant. Women are just the more vulnerable party in any straight sexual encounter because, in theory, men can reproduce every time they orgasm and then sort of ride off into the sunset women can't do that if you're if you become pregnant you have nine months of pregnancy you have a dangerous labor you have many years of infant care whatever or you have the very difficult options of abortion infanticide etc bearing in mind of course that before the modern era abortion is always quite dangerous because you don't have the modern medical tech that makes it safe as it as it is now so there's always that risk asymmetry between any man and woman. There's also the fact that women are smaller than men and much physically weaker than men. Like our upper body strength, men, male upper body strength is about twice as, as great as women's. It's a really, really big difference, which pretty much means that in any encounter you're going to have... The vast majority of men can kill the vast majority of women with their bare hands. But not vice versa, which has very obvious kind of social relevance. And then you've also got psychological differences, like the fact that men are just more interested in casual sex in general. Men are more interested in watching porn. Men are more interested in buying sex. Like men are just more like innately promiscuous than women are. That's an average thing. There are lots of outliers, but on like a population level, that does that does make sense. So the problem I think with just saying like throw out all the restrictions, throw out all the norms. Let's everyone be free. <laughs> is that you've got this very uneven playing field, and it means that if you're applying, you know, freedom, if you're removing restrictions from everyone, not everyone within a sexual culture is going to be able to enjoy those freedoms in the same way because of the nature of the nature of the asymmetry, which is also obviously driven by class and race. And other kinds of inequalities. And I think that in that context actually, having a having a having a social system that says that men are obliged to control themselves, that men are that men have like a special responsibility to be gentlemanly, to restrain themselves, to to take special care of what women want. But you know, all of this it's very dangerous to just throw that out the window. Because what else have you got for, from like women's perspective? If you don't have any like social standards that you can call on, yeah, what are we supposed to do?
0: I think the social standard, and, and this is all theoretical for me, mm-hmm. right? And in, in not in its importance, but in the fact that I haven't written a book, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to work some of this stuff out as as someone who does think about these things. But I think about a lot of things, <laughs> so is it's sometimes a little bit of a of a jumble and a mishmash. But what I what I do think is that yes, we all have responsibility, and we don't need to be the same in the sense that you know I'm a a, a dude, but. LeBron James is bigger than me, right? Like, so even even within a, a population size of, of gender, strict gender, like male and, and female, those who identify as those things, there's differences, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, Shaq, LeBron, there's a t- ton of the average American football player bigger than me, right? And I'm a normally sized guy, right? But and when it comes to gender and the way we're, we're talking about these things, I I start to fall into these nature versus nurture conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Where men, to the extent that we're talking about their physical abilities when it pertains to women, I would like to find a way and language. So this is like my wished system where we can talk about the emotional parts of a man's development. And so again, my ideas are that Those notions of like what we're gonna just call chivalry, you know, for lack of a better word, they trap men in these like often unrealistic expectations, right? That are physical, they're also like financial. There's just a lot of stuff that that I think like sinks into that that makes it difficult as we have now shifted our expectations of of women as fully sentient beings to reconcile, right? So a lot of, to me, like that gentleman stuff, it's like men want sex. And so they've learned all of this stuff in order to show or demonstrate to a potential sexual partner that they care, Mm -hmm. right? But those things don't actually mean that you care, There is like a pantomime that you're performing because you've learned all this stuff. Open a door, you know, pull out the table and pull out the chair from the table, you know, compliment you, bring you flowers, you know, pay for the dinner and do all this kind of stuff because I'm getting to the thing Mm -hmm. that I really want. So if I play this role, then I'll get it. And so it's it's very much like that incel argument to me, right? Like, oh, if I'm a nice guy, like I'm a nice guy. Like, how come I don't get the desired woman I want? So I am I did the things and she still didn't like me. So fuck women, I hate them. And I'm going to shoot up a bunch of women in a massage parlor or whatever, right? And I think as this, those two systems that have kind of converged is creating this like Broken emotional state of men trying to live up to an ideal that never existed because those men back in those days never did that shit either. They weren't nice guys, right? They were a bunch of fucking robber baron assholes who had money and were able to move through society and do what they want, right? (laughs) Like and 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 women had no choice but to land the best guy, right? So I'm gonna go to Smith College so I could find a dude from Radcliffe and He'll marry me and do, you know. So I'm, you know, I'm spinning, but I'm just thinking like that's why I push back so much against those things because the fact that they were never real, but men today are trying to live up to them has to me created this like cycle of potential violence by these dudes that are equating nice guy to all that sort of behavior and thinking that the minute they do it, the woman's going to be there for them. And when she's not, and they don't have any other options as it pertains to, you know, employment, all these kind of things. It just cycles. And and that incel stuff, I just find it more and more wrapped up in a very insidu- insidious way in these kind of conversations. So that's why I'm like always trying to be like, hmm, I don't know, maybe, but really, you know, because <laughs> I was young once, right? And I remembered being like, oh, yeah, you know. Like, you know, these jokes that people, comedians would have back in the day, like, oh, she ordered the lobster? She's ordering from the fucking side of the menu, right? Like, and I I think that shit is terrible. Yeah. I laughed at it when I was 20 years old, but now I'm like, no, that shit's awful. You know, like, we shouldn't think that
1: way. This idea that, yeah, you put, yeah, you put lobster in and sex comes out.
0: You know, shrimp or. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever it is. Meal of choice. Yeah,
1: yeah. A very, very transactional attitude towards sexual relationships. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But then I also think, like, so because of the nature of sexual asymmetry, because what we were talking about just before with the fact that women, sex is just a lot more costly for women in the sense that, I mean, less so obviously post-sexual revolution, And this is, of course, why the pill is so transformative, because if sex isn't necessarily going to risk pregnancy, like, it does become less... Less costly, less risky, you, you you have to worry less about who you're having sex with basically because it's just like less likely to result in having a child. Although not always. I mean let's remember that like all contraception fails. There will always be women who don't want to have abortions for whatever reason.
0: Absolutely. Like
1: the pill, amazingly, very surprisingly to everyone, led to this massive rise in single motherhood. This is just like an amazing example of why uh, human beings are really complicated and <laughs> just like introducing, definitely are. You're right, introducing some new technology isn't going to necessarily have predictable results. But it is still, the, I think, the case that in terms of our minds, right, we spent 95% of our species history as hunter-gatherers. The pill is, in terms of our evolutionary history, the the pill arrived five minutes ago, less. Like our brains have not caught up with this. And so even though in your conscious mind you can be saying like whatever i can i can i can do whatever i want because i'm not this isn't going to result in pregnancy that's not actually how we feel unconsciously that's not how our instincts work so in general women are women care about men doing what economists describe as costly signaling you know when you're have you ever come across female dating strategy as a it's a, it's a it's a. It used to be on Reddit. It used to be a subreddit. They now have this. Oh, no. They no. <laughs> they now have a separate website. Once
0: you mention Reddit to me, I'm like, oh no. It's a, it's
1: a very it's it, a female it's dating such a stretch, well, I, which is probably why they left. So they now have a separate website. It's uh, mostly run by American women, but it's like a global thing. Female dating stretch is really interesting because it's basically like a. um, it's like a female counterpart to pickup artistry. It's, like a, it's almost like a arms race between pickup artistry and FDS, right? Like, you know, we know that pickup artists are trying to basically, how do you like most effectively get women into bed and not have to, not have to do costly signaling. And FDS is, is, is like offering women alternative strategies basically. And like one of the points that FDS make, which is a good one in one of their, their rules, is that don't accept dates from men that aren't expensive for those men and the reason for that is not because you care about lobster or anything sort of trivial like that it's because if he's if he, he can't possibly be taking a, like a different woman out on a date every night if he's spending this much money on the dates it's basically a way i know it seems kind of like a stupid pantomime as you say like the pulling out of the chair and all of this stuff like yeah. it's kind of dumb but from women's perspective, what he's doing in doing all of that stuff is showing that he's actually one of he's actually investing in you. Like he's actually willing to spend the money on the on the dinner. He's actually willing to like be polite and restrain himself in all sorts of ways. And what what's that what that's saying in 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 a collective sense is if I get you pregnant, I'm gonna hang around. Which matters, right? Matters a lot. Not just matters in terms of psychologically, like how much you've sort of Feel invested in the relationship, but like really materially matters if you do end up having a child together because mothers and children are so vulnerable. So vulnerable. You just cannot work when you're heavily pregnant or you have a tiny baby. You need someone to look after you. And to some extent, the state can do that. And like to some extent, the welfare state, and more so in the UK than in America, but. Like, it is possible now to survive as a single mother in a way that it didn't used to be because you can, like, get social housing and healthcare and there's like, this stuff it exists. But it's not easy. It's really not easy. And single mothers are so much more likely to be living in poverty than any other category of people, any other category of people, full stop, let alone category of mothers. So I think that the, the purpose of the pantomime should be to basically give women information about who they should be having sex with does that make sense? That's my
0: defense of it. No, no, it does make sense. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a defense thing. It's more Mm -hmm. just of a a ideation thing. Cause when I, like when I hear that, right. And I think back to my, my own experiences, you know, I used to, before I did things that meant something, Mm -hmm. I did a lot of stuff that meant nothing, but that stuff paid me a lot of money. Right. So Going out on dates every every night was not an issue. <laughs> so I think- But well, it should
1: be proportionate to how much you're earning. I think this is yeah. what FTS would say. Like it should be expensive <laughs> oh, for a... him.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think they need to have a, a better look at how much money some guys make, <laughs> right? Because yeah. expensive to them could be, I don't know. Helicopter I, rides and stuff. Yeah. You know, because yeah. the funny thing is, I remember there's a, I mean, there's a big, segment of like very organized women who are basketball groupies, for example, mm-hmm. right? And um, I, 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 I think it's really a big basketball thing because basketball has like a lot of social media. It just has a certain culture mm-hmm. and um, their games almost every night, mm-hmm. right? So as a sport, you know, it, it tends to coalesce around like heavily urban areas in the United States, you know, big cities. And you know, the Knicks could play in New York and then go to Philly and then go to Boston. Like, you know, they move around quick. Mm -hmm. And there's a subculture of like basketball groupies that like, Follow these these dudes around, yep. right? Like know where they are, kind of know their schedule, and it's 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 interesting from a sociological perspective because it's very organized and complex. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, do I, so these I, women
1: have jobs?
0: Yeah, their job is to be a basketball group. <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> um, okay, okay.
0: <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm generalizing. I I don't actually don't some of them might might have jobs. I don't okay. know, right, but their focus is basketball players. Yeah, and um and so the wealth divide in that is that these guys have so much money the flying you out to like hang out isn't really a big as big a cost as it might appear yeah and it doesn't really signal anything so that's again i keep coming back to i think the the goals are misaligned because the their perception is like oh this person cares because they spent on like we went to Sandra pay Mm -hmm. and I'm like to that person that $10,000 isn't anything at all.
1: Well, I I think the problem there is not the whole like idea of costly signaling. The problem there is that the women have done the maths wrong.
0: Oh yeah. But the, (laughs) but the math will never catch up. Right. Like that's, that's my point. Right. Like if I'm a hedge fund guy Mm. and I'm a billionaire, you're never going to tap into what you would perceive to be that cost value analysis, Mm -hmm. because there's going to be a certain point where I'm like, I don't need to do that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like, Because there's always going to be a lower bidder to hit, Mm -hmm. right? Which is why I'm trying so hard to get us out of this economic transactional way of thinking about these things to get us into a emotional way of thinking about these things, right? Like teaching from the time we're young to get into caring communal relationships that are not reliant on like, you're weak, I need to like lay my coat down over a puddle, (laughs) you know, and it's like, we have umbrellas now, like paved roads, like Mm. what are we talking about, (laughs) you know? So that's what I'm trying to figure out that language. So I think you make an excellent point about single mothers live, can potentially live in in poverty, right? And I feel like that's a policy choice. Like we've, we've decided as a society that, we're okay with that relative to other things that we waste money on right so single mother poverty is a choice it's not an absolute of how it has to be right we can we can build something different mm. right in in the same way we used to have like daycare in 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 the US and like free lunch programs we had all this stuff right then We went a different way, whether it's austerity in the UK, it's kind of neoliberal jackals in the US, but we've made other choices. Mm. So what I'm trying to do, I guess, is break out the sexual choice and the implications of that to these other policy choices that are running on another track. Mm. Right. So I can't say, oh, the, the sex has led to this consequence where I'm like, well, yeah, it could have led to the to the kid but the kid now, and the kid and the mother being in poverty, is a different choice that we're making to spend money on bullshit and not spend money on social services. Does that make sense?
1: It does. But I, I, I yeah. I mean, it's just kind of an empirical question. So a tricky one. Like, to what extent, though? Do to what extent is the disintegration of the family partly a result of the fact that the state is now there to pick up the pieces in a way that it didn't used to be? I mean and clearly there are cases where that is the right thing. Like if you're talking about say domestic violence, it is a really good thing that women now don't have to remain married to violent men that they can that they can survive on their own and I and I and I completely agree about in those sort of cases of course the state should be stepping in and we should be. I mean what the state is is its taxpayers it's a collective stepping in and and supporting those those mothers and children in refuges and education and free lunch and all this kind of stuff. Like completely agree. But do we do we want to in other cases in actually where there isn't violence or abuse actually like relationships are okay not necessarily head over heels in love happy all the time because most people don't aren't like that in any of their relationships particularly long no one's like that no particularly long term <laughs> monogamous relationships like you have to ex- expect a certain that,
0: that lasts for about two weeks
1: <laughs> yeah you have to expect a certain degree of like
0: just let's get on with
1: it grumpiness yeah yeah absolutely do we want to say in those cases that actually. It's better to... I describe the, in the book the state as the backup husband. The state does the things that the husband could do, you know, feeding, housing, whatever. I mean, obviously women can now earn their own income, but we know that it's just in reality it's really hard to do it completely on your own. So you need another source of income. You need someone to to perform all of these roles. The state can do it. We know the state can do it, but the state doesn't do it very well. And I and I think even if it was, you had almost infinite money thrown at it, there are things the state can never do. And there are things the market can never do as well. You can't entirely throw money at this problem. There are certain things that only the family can do. And I actually wonder if, is that it's a very difficult balance between wanting to both be pro-family, but also, To pick up the pieces when the family does collapse, which it sometimes does, and that's such a tightrope.
0: It is. It is a tightrope. I I I offer that we need like to expand the definition of family, right? Like, if I just think about my own situation, like my Mm. parents have been together for a thousand years, and Mm -hmm. that's not proof of anything other than like hey, they've been together for a really long time, right? And I think, I think my parents are awesome, but, you know, whatever. Some, mm. people, some families aren't together for a long time, and they're fine. But I think the reality is, is that if I look back on my experience, and I think certain communities have different family experiences, it's, it was a communal experience. Mm. Every, every adult, to a certain extent, was an adult that we knew, in the sense that they're all immigrants, right? They all came from, came from the West Indies and we are all kind of living in the same community, sometimes in the same building. And any adult could discipline you. Mm-hmm. And that was not like a, a, a weird thing. Right. Nowadays, people don't even want you looking at their kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it's like, so I'm like all of these personal things, like everything has become smaller and individualized and atomized. Yeah. You know, whereas like I grew up with aunts and older cousins and all these people. So where we might not have had everything because we were not wealthy, we had a lot of people around us. So that family support to me is bigger than one, one husband, one wife, and then kid.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Right. I think that the, when we say family, we shouldn't just be thinking nuclear family. Yeah. Because actually living in an extended family, like all close together and exactly as you say, having this kind of adults around you that you know all the time, that is the human norm. That is for the vast majority of our, our history. That is how people have lived. And it is weird now that we don't have that and that that has... Yeah.
0: And so I think... That yeah. kind of permeates this, you know. It's yeah. it's it's funny. I want to I want to get to a couple of things. I'm watching the time, right? So I'm like, because I feel like we're gonna turn this into just us having a three hour conversation um, as <laughs> okay, we jump so, from so thing to thing. Yeah. Because I'm like, I've forgotten we're even recording. It's been, <laughs> it's been so pleasant, right? Um, so I, I want to get to a, a a maybe one two yeah, I'll say one thing and and then I'll just get to the drop. Like I'll. Let us do the drop, which is the recommendation thing. I'll I'll leave out the the off the dome because I think these questions will be will be better. Yeah. You know, I wanted two things. How do we parse critique of a system Mm -hmm. from the the judgment of what people are are into? Right. Because I, I think when I'm thinking about again the sexual revolution, it's like there's there's such disparity as to what people like and enjoy from a sexual perspective, right? And and you do talk about this quite a bit in the book that there's, you know, when we're talking about the world of of BDSM and other sexual kinks and all this kind of stuff, like how do we understand some of those things without making it a function of if it's out of this container whatever this container is you know I'm I'm kind of pantomiming my hands in a way that listeners won't get (laughs) but I'm trying to like set us some kind of scale here how do we understand judgment versus critique outside of those norms I guess whatever people would consider to be normal like how do we think through that a little bit and then I'll ask one more question (laughs)
1: uh it's really hard it's really hard I because because what people you will so often hear people talking about The way that the the, the sexual revolution, okay, the the way that our sexual norms have changed in recent decades as, um, oh, we got rid of shame. We got rid of shame. You know, the war on shame. And I don't think we have got rid of shame, actually. I think all we've done is we've just attached shame to different things than what we used to attach it to. And I actually think that's fine because I think that shame is just what we call it when the feeling that the emotion that you feel when you disobey a norm that's fine like that's kind of an inevitable result of having norms that there would be no if there were no emotional repercussions from them they they wouldn't exist the question is what those norms are and what people are feeling shame in response to and that's a tricky one because and it, and it is really tricky when you're trying to i'm going to choose a really controversial example paedophilia we have a very very strong taboo still against paedophilia having any kind of sexual attraction to children is a deep, deep source of shame. And I take the slightly controversial view that actually there are some people, most of them men, who, for whom paedophilia is not a choice. Like they do, it, it is, it is kind, it, it's kind of like a sexual orientation. It's unusual, but there are men who discover when they're normally during adolescence that they're really sexually attracted to children. And there are, and, there, and some of them never act on it. They, fee- they feel these feelings, but they never act on it. They never commit any crimes. There are sometimes support groups and so on for these men, whatever. But the, like it is honestly, you would not wish it on your worst enemy, that kind of experience. It is is a, ter- a dreadful source of shame. It makes it really, really difficult to ever have normal romantic relationships and so on. I feel really sorry for them, for real. These are the men who are not actually committing... Criminal acts, but they just—they have a sexual desire for children, which they are just
0: running in the yeah, and they
1: yeah, and they they like who knows where it comes from. But this is clearly a phenomenon. You might say, "Oh, I feel really sorry for them. We should be destigmatizing this. There shouldn't be any shame attached to it." But the problem is downstream of that. If you're really going to say like that, that's a kindness maybe to those men. But is that really something that you wanna? If, do we really want to say, as a culture oh, no, having sexual attraction to children is fine, really? Because you know what's downstream of that, right? And I think, the, and I think sometimes you just get to these really kind of painful painful trade-offs is quite a fundamentally conservative insight that everything has trade-offs. It isn't actually possible to design a system that is amazing for everyone. And it's just part of, uh, suffering is unfortunately part of the human experience. The question is just about how you balance it all. We're
0: definitely going to lose some folks. Right? Like, <laughs> Sorry,
1: I <I'm> just <laughs> No, not in, not in,
0: not in terms of listening to us.
1: Your podcast listeners just like, oh.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about in, in the, in the example that you described, right? That, you know, yeah. this is a, is a, I don't know how big a percentage of people that is, mm. but I'm going to imagine that it's a a smaller subset of a subset, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 0.1% let's say of the population. Yeah. It's a really small minority, yeah. Yeah, it's
0: a small minority. So when I say we're going to lose some people, we're there we're never going to be able to cover
1: everything. Yeah.
0: Right? Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, but what I'm Trying to explore, and we're we're never going to solve this, even in the context of the few minutes that we have left. Is you know the like people feel like a lot of shame, right? Body shame, particularly when you're younger and you're kind of coming into your sexuality because people don't want to talk about sex. Like people can feel shame just over nor- normal feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Like adolescence, yeah, can bring shame if you're family and people around you don't tell you like, hey, you know what, this is normal, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a much larger group of people, right? Because we all reach a point from, you know, sexual immaturity to graduating into a sexual maturity and coming into whatever our thing is, right? Like mm-hmm. the notions of 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 being um being gay for a long time. You know, I'm grew up in the 70s and 80s. People, th- we call it being in a closet because people felt shame over just who they were. Mm-hmm. Now it's not perfect, but I think that, like, being, you know, outwardly gay, even young, depending on where you are, mm-hmm. is now more acceptable than it used to be, right? Yeah. Like, I never would have watched um, TV shows just due to use a pop culture reference and see, like, kids in high school not just being gay but their gayness not being odd. Yeah. Like they're not gay and bullied. They're gay and just part of what's going on, right? And I've seen that transition. So those are more the the things I'm talking about, that like those windows have shifted in a way to include more perspectives. Like you mentioned 50- And in a good way. Yeah, in a good way.
1: Because, I mean, this is such an interesting sociological question. Why did people change their minds about- Gay lesbian people so quickly, amazing. We went from within a single human lifetime, we went from the criminalisation of homosexuality to the legalisation of same-sex marriage. Amazing, because there was sort of a collective decision that actually there wasn't anything to be ashamed of. That having loving sexual relationships with someone of the same sex was fine. That's that's where the negotiation happens, I guess. Like we're just this is a, a this is this isn't something you can opt out of. I, I think there's some The thing that I'm arguing against, I guess, is this view that, which is, I think, a naive view that some people have of of sexual cultures. They say, like, look, just leave people to it. Just don't have like we shouldn't have shame. We shouldn't have structures. We shouldn't have guardrails. You know, we just and like that's no, that is not (laughs) that's not how human societies work. We have we have to
0: we have to do that. I I I definitely agree, and I and I think we have to pull apart all those other things. Right. Yeah. And 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 that's why I I am and, and was so excited about the work right because it 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 shows a, a willingness to you know to really tackle these things right mm-hmm. and I, I definitely do think that you know there's there's more work to be done all of this is imperfect because we're imperfect right mm-hmm. but I, I I feel like there's there's as we explore more those those realities of like understanding the the, the way in which people are so fluid and they're Their kinks come come in come into it, and you know there's there's so many dirty there there's so many different things, right? That that make someone feel alive in these spaces, and as much as we can make space for them, I I think there's a willingness to to do that. So that's super exciting. So I'm gonna end us there, but I'm gonna get to the drop, <laughs> you know, because because I'm I'm we, I'm telling you we can do this for the rest of the day, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm and I'm not gonna subject you to that. So, like I said at the beginning, the the drop is just our opportunity to share with the listeners anything at all, and and in a weird way, you've given some drops because you mentioned some books and authors in here, yeah. and so you know, li- my listeners are very keen, and so they're gonna pick up all of that stuff. <laughs> believe awesome. me, awesome.
1: But I'll give like, my, give give my one
0: more. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm gonna give my drop, and okay. then you can go into yours. Cool. And And my drop is actually a, a TV show, and I always say like, in the US, is on Apple TV, but it's probably on Apple TV wherever you are because mm. they don't really license their stuff to many other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a show called Bad Sisters, and um, it's I'm not gonna give the the plot of the show away, but it's it's really well done, and it introduces a character. That has got to be one of the most despicable characters that I've ever seen in my life as as a as a person. And you know, dating myself here, but he's worse than J.R. Hewing for those who grew up in the 80s and remember Dallas. You know, like I don't know. (laughs) I know, sorry. (laughs) And and well, Google J.R. Hewing. That was a big American cultural moment. Like who killed who shot J.R.? Yeah. (laughs) But I'm I'm older.
1: I wasn't alive.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And then any any male character that you might have hated in Game of Thrones, this person is worse than any of those. <laughs> so the show is called Bad Sisters and it's on Apple TV and it's a fun, fun watch. Awesome. And that's my drop. All so right. you're up.
1: Uh, so mine is one that probably UK people in the UK would already know about, but it occurred to me that probably people in the States don't. It is a, one of the most popular podcasts in the UK. It's called The Rest is History. It's presented by two historians who... I know slightly, but I I came across the podcast before before we ever met. It is like 45-minute episodes generally on some area of history. They have covered everything you can possibly imagine. Most recent episode was on... Uh, early 19th century fashion they had a series on the lord of the rings recently they have have a lot of stuff on classical stuff because that's their one of their specialties they sometimes get on historians whatever honestly i have learned i did a degree in history at the university of oxford i have learned more from the rest is history than i did in my degree i it is it's it's, and it's just a really really pleasant lesson because they have like a lovely manner it's very sweet and funny they so they really like they ask the questions that you want answered about a particular topic. Me and my husband are both obsessed. We always listen we always listen to it in the car if we're driving anywhere. Awesome, and I, I can't stop recommending it to people. So now, I, so now I'm recommending it to to that your listeners. Yeah, it <laughs> is
0: a great drop. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for it myself. I, and, and when you said Lord of the Rings, you're talking about the books, not the new show.
1: Well, that was the reason for them doing it because of the new show. But oh. yeah, it was all about Tolkien's biography and the social context of writing it and so much stuff I didn't know I love there was a really good episode there two episodes on The Lord of the Rings and it was about things like how Tolkien's experience in the Blitz influenced how he wrote about the Nazgul as these kind of like they're all, basically all the ways in which the Second World War is knitted through the, the books and yeah, just great. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's funny. I'm gonna give an anti-drop. The new show is awful. So if people are watching <laughs>
1: I've heard, yeah. Yeah, if the <laughs> people are are,
0: are 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 watching it, don't. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. I can't believe this is the most expensive thing ever made. Just goes <laughs> to show you. People will, will waste money everywhere. That shit is terrible. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so that's my anti-drop to to kind of Put us all in the put a nice bow on it. <laughs> Don't watch Rings of Power. A waste Save of your,
1: your time. time. Yeah.
0: Save your time. Yeah. So, Louise, this has been awesome. Um, I'm, I'm glad we were able to to be in conversation with one another, and we've barely scratched the surface. Mm. The the book again is the Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I highly recommend people checking it out, wrestling with the ideas that you that you put on the table, because I think when we have These conversations, only good things can come of them. So thank you so much for joining me on The Deep Dive. Thank you so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via @farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.